from Carry the Load, these are Lessons from the Front, stories of service and sacrifice from our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. Welcome to another episode of Carry the Load's Lessons from the Front. I am your host, Todd Boating, and I cannot wait to get right to it today. I've got a couple of individuals, one a very old dear friend, uh, 25 years that I have known Jeff Upsidus. And I have today with him, uh, this is, this is going to be a unique one for me. First of all, I have to, to pronounce his name and that is Frank Gulshad. And, uh, Frank, you were Jeff's interpreter, if I've understood it correctly in Afghanistan. Is that correct? Correct. And uh, I'll get to you in a minute here, Jeff. But, yeah. uh, so Frank, where are you originally from? I'm originally, my father was, uh, from Northern Pakistan. My okay. mother's on the Turkish border with Iran. Okay. She's Iranian. I was born in the Middle East in okay. Saudi Arabia. And uh, now I'm here in America. Okay. So the family is Iranian and Pakistani, but you were born in Saudi and you ended up interpreting in Afghanistan. Correct. My Lord. Okay. Well, all around. explains yeah. all languages. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to come back to that one here in a minute. So, uh, and then Jeffrey Upsidus. Uh, so 25 years ago, you and I went to OCS, the basic school, infantry officer course. And I don't know that I saw you until about two months ago when I learned that you moved to the Dallas area. And you just recently retired as a, as a full bird colonel. Light colonel. Was it a light colonel? Light okay. Colonel. Yep. Sorry, I was trying to promote you it's one okay. last time. Yeah. Um, so as, as a lieutenant colonel, but you didn't have like a, a, a normal, you know, I started, went all the way through and I stopped. You were prior enlisted, uh, which that was like half of our OCS class, as I recall, was we were prior enlisted. We um, but then you got out for a little bit. What brought you back in? The, uh, you know, everybody, uh, the grass is always not a greener on the other side, right? Right. Um, proverbial. And, uh. You know, I felt like I was going to go out to corporate America. My wife was working at the time for um, KPMG Consulting. Yep. And she had a uh, a boss who was actually the CEO um, talk to me and mm-hmm. give me the idea that, that uh, I'm more marketable at um, as a captain uh, for my 30 years that I can give to corporate America. And I've already learned all my leadership that I can give. And it's time to get out and serve corporate America. Uh, kind of a... You fell for that? I did. And, um, <laughs> you know, as soon as you, as soon as you hit the ground, uh, after you depart the, the military after for so long and you realize that you're, you know, to your left and to your right is the, uh, the young kids that have come through school. Um, I was, you know, six, seven, eight years older than them doing the same job. It was, um, it was an eye opener because of, of, you know, they didn't necessarily walk the same ground that, that you and I, um, had walked. And it was a, uh, an eye opener for me that that you know I really missed where I had come from and yep. what, what made me the person that I was and it was the military since age seventeen. So uh, it was a long road to uh, to get back in. Um, I had to take a, uh, a lateral move. I lost you know I was no longer an infantry officer. I had to transition over to ground um, ground intelligence, and uh, it was easy to do that transition. However, um, it was a hard road to get back full time in order to go. Uh, the full 20, if not longer uh, as an officer. So 
What year was that, though, when you came back in? So right around 2001, mm-hmm. right when the uh, the wars were, were okay. beginning. Okay. Mm-hmm. It was right so, after 9-11. So it was 9-11, um, probably eight months or so afterwards. Okay. I, took it, I took activation at that point. I was active reserve um, and then just stayed active duty ever since. Frank, what was going on in, in, in your world in 2001? Where were you? In 2001? <clears throat> Let, let's, just, let's just call it this way. On 9-11, mm-hmm. what, what did your world look like? My world looked like um, I had just started a company, a paper company, a, about a, less than a year. And when the incident happened, it kind of shook everybody. You know, and was that here in the in the states? Yeah, it was right here in the okay. states, and um, it was actually my second paper company that I started. How how long had you been in the states? When I've been in the states since 1978. Okay, so I was 15 when I came to the states. Perfect. Okay, so you were 15 years old when you come here. So for all intents and purposes, mm-hmm. I mean, America is what you know. America is where your heart is. Um, 9-11 happens. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it probably affected you a little differently than a lot of people, I would imagine, as soon as all the details started coming out. Yes. Walk, walk me through that a little bit. Uh, it affects you differently because you, first of all, you're not a native-born American, and people might look at you differently, whether we like it or not. Skin color still matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, background still matters. Uh, your accent still matters. And various other things matter. They shouldn't, but they do. So you have to be cautious. You're the people you went to school with, elementary school, middle school, junior high school, you know, some look at you differently. As where you're from and what happened, are you affiliated with them? Are you part of them? So, you know, it affects you deep emotionally. It does. Because uh, immigrants are most, I would say, or if not all immigrants are more patriotic than a naturally born U.S. citizen. I, I would agree with that. And, because and, you take things for granted. Yeah, and, and I... I I know that somebody listening to this would would pipe in with you know I, they're not, come on this is America I mean I, you're mm-hmm. not more more than I am mm-hmm. the reality is and and I I had a um, uh, somebody that was working for me at one point they um, uh, they were from Kenya and they're they're uh, they're they're swearing in for their citizenship they they gave everybody a rundown on all the things that you you know, that these people had to go through in order to become citizens. And I'm here to tell you, I mean, as a history guy, I bet you I didn't know as much as a lot of them had to learn in order to gain acceptance into this country. So that in and of, and that, and that kind of goes back to, you know, the way we learned in the Marine Corps. I mean, you know, I, I'm fond of saying that there are no better propagandists in this world than the Marine Corps. We are really, really good <laughs> at, at, you know, it tooting our own horn when we need to, but we do that through history and we do that through uh, the immersion in our, in our Marine Corps culture. 
So I, I just want to jump in right away, Frank, and, and back you up on that because I have absolutely seen that uh, firsthand. So let's just kind of, you know, get to the point where, you know, you guys are traveling different paths. 9-11, Jeff, you're, um, you, you were out. No, I was at IOC. I was teaching her. Teaching at IOC. Oh, yeah, yeah. Greeley and those guys, yeah. Okay, so it was, it was uh, that's right. You were at IOC on 9-11. Okay. So, Frank, you're, you're in the paper business at that point. Yeah, I'm just. You're just living the American the, dream, literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, so nine eleven happens. Um, then, how, when did you get over to Afghanistan, and how did you get to Afghanistan? So the the time that we met in Afghanistan was two thousand and nine. Yeah. Okay. So it was sometime after my first tour in Afghanistan was in o two o three, right when we first opened the embassy there uh, in Kabul. Um, I had India three six at the time. Mm-hmm. And then um, came back and, and went through the transition period and went over to, uh, to, to my, new, my new job. Um, went through some training uh, for that. And then by the time 2009 rolled around, I was with a uh, uh, newly formed uh, Marsoc at the time. Okay. Yep. And uh, I was... And we've got another classmate that uh, traveled that world. Yeah, Mr. Galvin. Yeah. He's... Fred Galvin will be our one of our guests here before too long. I'll watch that podcast. I'm sure you will. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a he's a good man. Yes. Um, the no so so went through Marsoc and we stood it up and what we were doing at the time we were we were sending out uh, uh, individual augmentees to some of the uh, uh, the different special forces out there. In this case, I went over with uh, the Army Special Forces into Afghanistan. Frank, how what was your journey from 9/11? To, to meeting Jeff in 2009? Like, like I'd mentioned, um, I had just started a business, and it was um, tumultuous times, but worked hard and made it grow and just stayed at it. Worked diligently till grew the company to a considerably size and then got an offer for a buyout at 2005 from one of our clients. Um, I refused the offer. Then about a year later, they came back with another offer. And then I accepted the offer. And I sold the company to a client, which is a part of a national group. And I was idle for about six, maybe seven months. And just uh, thinking what to do next. And this opportunity came up as to, you know, go serve the country. And it was it sounded very far and distant, and I didn't know what it was about. So I applied, and thank God I got accepted and uh, went through some quite a few rigorous tests, passed the test, and then uh, ended up in Afghanistan. So when, when you say you, you got this opportunity, how did – what was specifically the opportunity? The opportunity was a friend of mine had asked – had told me that since you're, I speak a few different dialects, languages. He said, um, you have this ability. Why don't you go surf? And I said, I would like to surf, but I've never, you know, I've never spent one minute anywhere. So, so it was just kind of a networking type conversation. Exactly. So he said, I yeah. will give you 
a ref, uh, reference to call. I called this uh, recruiter for this company, and then uh, she pretty much straightened out the whole thing for me, how the process works, what to do, what not to do. And then it took a while. It took a good while to get um, background check. I mean, they did a thorough background check. The FBI was over times they i mean they they do a good thorough check for mm-hmm. your sf86 and then when you're applying for your uh clearances various different clearances and then fortunately they all happen fairly quickly are, are you at liberty to say what what kind of clearance you had to get i had to get ts and sci top okay. secret and SCI. okay um and so when you say quantify how long it took from the from the time you made that phone call and said I'm interested, and you filled out the paperwork mm-hmm. to, to months, show them months, 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 okay, months of rigorous back and forth, back and forth. But it was just all procedure, right. one step after another step after, and I had traveled extensively throughout my business. Mm-hmm. I traveled to Asia quite a few times. Um, yeah, so they they had to dig in deep. On I that. had I have. Probably nine passports. Each one has probably a hundred plus stamps, maybe more. Jeez. So they had to know each and every stopover, whether it was a transit. If it was transit, it was more than an hour or two. Did I talk to anybody? Can I remember when it was twenty years ago, fifteen years ago? And I have, I'm, I'm probably not. I'm probably undercutting it. There's, I probably have about a thousand entries, different places. So they wanted to know all of that. That. My SF-86 was good two and a half, three inches thick. <laughs> I'm proud to say mine wasn't that thick. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was mostly Asia, mostly all China, Taiwan, and back and forth. Because I do business. I did paper business with them and right. machinery. Afghanistan. So when, when did you enter, enter into Afghanistan? 2009. Okay. So is this? Time frame. Now we're, now we're linking up. Okay, so now we're linking up. So you were, uh, dare I say, each is first. That, I'd like to, I, don't, I don't know how else to say it. <laughs> so the, the, the story kind of goes, and, and again, I think we sometimes try to remember exactly what was there. Is, um, you know, I was on the border um, near the Khyber Pass, uh, border of Afghanistan, Pakistan, pretty big transit point. And we had our teams that were there, and um, you know, interpreters come and go. Uh, right. Some of them are just local, the, you know, trusted that it'll just be nothing more than a quick dialogue. But when you receive a U.S. Uh, terp, affectionately called, uh, it's it's different, right? So they they go through a process much like what Frank was just talking about. Mm-hmm. And so we were there, and and Frank showed up, and um, you know, immediately, like like Frank said, I mean, sometimes we put folks through a certain lens and here comes Frank and you're waiting for the dialect, you're waiting for the, you know, the, the third, and he comes in and, and you could hear from him now. He sounds like a California guy, right? Yeah. So in, in comes Frank. He's like, Hey, what's up guys? And, uh, and you know, immediately we hit it off because, you know, knowing that he has the, the, the trust of the U S government, he's gone through all the process of clearances and such. Um, immediately, um, he's an asset. Mm-hmm. He's an asset to the teams. He's an asset to, Everything and he certainly was uh, a blessing for us to receive at the time because he does, and I think he undercut himself. Um, he speaks seven languages with a whole bunch of different dialects for each one. So, again, there was times that, that I had 
Pakistanis uh, here, Afghanistan, uh, Afghanis here, and then the dialect that each one of those uh, cultures can go through, um, folks can go through. Frank was just dialing them in, listening to each one of the conversations. And sometimes, you know, folks would switch over and Frank would jump right in and, and uh, switch either with them or leave it unknown that he was listening into the cha- transition. So, yeah, again, that, that was probably your, your greatest asset, capability, yeah. asset as an asset, uh, was to, to listen in when they didn't think. Yeah. It, um, it actually, it, it was. And it, it came naturally because my mother when she married my father, didn't speak his language. Uh, my father was an engineer. He worked for an electric, hydroelectric dam company out of England, and he was an, a structural engineer. They were stationed in Iran to build a dam, and it, it's like a, like a Hollywood movie. <laughs> he, they were in a mountainside building this dam at a, in a gorge where he met my mother. He'd seen her once, like one of those old fairy tale movies. He never knew who she was, and he didn't know who, where she came from. But he pursued her, and then they got married. And then my first oldest brother was born in Iran. So your dad was from Pakistan. Yeah, your mom was from uh, or from uh, Iran. Uh, Iran. Uh-huh. Um, so explain. I mean, you know, to the average redneck like me. You look at, at, at those countries and you're like, well, they're not too far apart. And, you know, it's all Middle East or it's all that they all speak the same language. And like you were saying, Jeff, mm-hmm. seven different languages and there's multiple dialects for each one. Yeah. Give everybody, you know, a, a quick hit on how different these languages can be when they might sound exactly the same. The yeah. guys like us. They're actually quite different. They're as different as you can get. Good for me, I had an advantage because, like I was saying, my, my mother, we in our house, we spoke four different languages automatically. My, yeah, just my mother spoke one, so it's her mother tongue. We speak that. My father spoke one, it's his tongue, so we spoke that with him. It's automatically when you're talking to your mother, back and forth, four-way conversation. So this is one language. This is another language. You're visiting. Uh, we don't want to be rude. Whether if you don't speak this, we speak to you in your language. You're visiting. You don't speak either one of these, so we speak to you in this language and a couple other ones. So this was automatic, and so it came very naturally to do that. How'd you throw some teenage girls in there, and who knows what's going to happen now? <laughs> a, a completely new language. So, okay, so you guys start working together, and, and like you said, Jeff, you immediately hit it off. There had to have been a big challenge, though, in some way meshing, I mean, obviously there, you, you gave me some insight into what, what really stood out in a positive way, but there had to have been some challenges, some friction there to, you know, just, just to get on the same page. Was that, was there anything like that or did, was there just a natural mesh? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's a good question. I think, uh, it, it definitely depends on the individual. Um, you know, Frank came to us, uh, with, you know, we were in an arduous environment. I mean, it was, it was difficult. I mean, we were all wearing, you know, local clothes. We had all, you know, relaxed grooming standards and such. And it was just a, a place where, um, you know, things were happening. And we n- know how to protect each other based on our training, mm-hmm. you know, within the military. And, uh, 
you know, when you receive your assets, your, your, your interpreters and such within, you know, you, you need to bring them in because you need to protect them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that case, um, you know, that first couple of weeks of assimilation with, with having our, uh, you know, new joints coming into the unit, it was, it was important to, uh, show Frank the, uh, the ropes. Okay. Understand what's, what's right, what's wrong, when to smoke, when not to smoke, when to, you know, when to talk, when to stand behind somebody, um, when to not have to interpret everything or, you know, if, because <laughs> at times you want to say everything, the interpreters want to, you know, translate everything over to the individual. Sometimes we need a caveat, you know, and say, Hey, you don't need to say it like that. Or, this is between you and I, and uh, it was just a learning curve, right? It was, it was one of those things that we just kind of went through, and and immediately, like I had said, um, yeah, we bonded pretty quick because of not only the environment we were in, but because of of Frank's affable nature. Just mm-hmm. immediately, he's a super kind, super uh, nice man that that was able to just bond with everybody. You know, he had this ability through probably the multiple different, um, you know, cultures that that he had been exposed to uh, throughout his entire life to just blend right in. And the military is a different culture. Um, it's not easy to to get into it. Sure. Um, and and especially in that type of environment where everybody's antennas are up and everybody's on guard, you know, looking for you know the next event to occur. Um, Frank learned very quickly, and and that was very helpful. We didn't have to worry about whether he was going to uh, be a, uh, a you know indicator or some type of you know detriment to the unit or or, or cause some type of incident. It was a lifetime experience, and I loved every minute of it. And if I could go back, I would go back in one second. Really? I would go back right now, leave everything and go and serve. I was very, very, it was emotional for me because I'd never, I'd always, nobody in my family has ever been in the military. So, and the military is a tight-knit group, you know. Mm -hmm. But once you go inside and you see everybody, and the amount of talent, the sheer amount of talent and just wisdom I saw, not just through our unit, throughout the whole system, I was very impressed. I was lucky. I mean, I was enjoying myself. <laughs> I was serving, and it was probably one of the best times in my whole life, two years of best time. But surely you found yourself in a position at some point where you were like, what in the world did I sign on for? There were times. There were times we were in a hot zone. We got incoming quite a few often. We have nighttime rounds flying around, tracers. They're shooting over this mountain, that mountain. Rounds coming in, um, explosion outside. Just It was hot. It was just rock and roll all the time, but it was it, it was exciting. Yeah, I mean, you'd probably never been through any training. I've like never. I The hard— I, had a hard time learning some of the, the insignias for some of the on the uniforms that they gave us. You know, they give you a pamphlet to learn. These are the ranks and this and that. And that was the hardest thing. For that me. was harder to learn than the language. Just, I couldn't get those. <laughs> Anything else, it was okay. That was just difficult. So obviously you're an audio learner, not a visual learner. Correct. <laughs> so so t- tell me about one of those times where, you, where you're, you're sitting there and you're going, I do I don't know that I made the right decision. Why on earth am I here right now? Uh, I don't think if I, there, there were a lot of incidents like that. I'm a man of God. I believe in God and I believe in destiny. And then there were times that we would go out on the field and then you need to have your whole gear on and your uh, vests and you have to have the plates. Mm-hmm. 
And sometimes I would leave the plates out. And then my colleagues would say, you need to have that. That's for your own safety. I said, I believe in destiny. I mean, I might be going a little bit too far. It's, But look, if I'm meant to die, a bullet's going to come and hit me in the head. It's going to miss the chest. So I'm not going to wear the thing. Sometimes I wore the Yeah, plates. I don't know that that would have gone over too well in uh, most commands I was in. Exactly, right? So that's, that's what I was thinking as he was telling the story. I could remember him, and now I didn't remember that. I'm glad he brought that up, is uh, you know him taking his sappy plates out. And us realizing, because, you know, you, you you do the check. Okay. And make sure everybody the plates are in, and, and Frank didn't have his in. We're like, where's your savvy plates? And and what would you say? Inshallah. Well, I right? would say, I f- yeah, I would say I forgot, and the next time I'm going to put them in. That's right, right, right. right. But, but it, also, was, it yeah. was very interesting. <laughs> I loved every moment of it. The whole aspect of just uh, signing up, going through the ordeal of getting qualified, and then the actual movement, you know going to basic training here for like a week or two, getting all your gear, your 100 and 200 pounds of gear and hauling it in and going to the base and staying at the base and flying to all halfways and then ending up in Afghanistan. The first time, you know, you land, you're like, you're, you're wore out and you're looking at this vast place. It's new. You don't know who you are, where you're going, but it was interesting. And uh, we, I got deployed, I mean, within I, I ended up in Bagram, and probably within 36, less than 30, probably 24 hours, I was at my post. Which and, is where y'all met initially. Yes. Right? You know, Jeff, when you were over there, what did you see that really stuck with you? What did you experience that stuck with you to this day? Something that you just look at and go, you either shake your head or you smile. I mean, you know, I, I want to hear about one of the, the experiences that really sticks with you. So there was a village there that had a lot of, a lot of transit uh, activity going on. In fact, we felt like there was um, maybe even some fighters uh, that were being uh, coming across. In order to um, win the hearts and minds, if you will, of them, um, you, you, do, you find something that they need, something that the, uh, the village needs. And I think it was the saddest thing, but turned into a positive, is that um, they needed water, running water. Um, they didn't have something we to, just absolutely take for granted here. Right. So any any type of water, even if it was going to come off the hillside, the mountain, um, we built them a, a a concrete cistern, and allowed for that water to collect and run down. We piped it into the village, even with the um, uh, very simple, you know, methods to bring it in. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could have given them uh, the Empire State Building at that point because of the way in which they then at that point looked at you as bringing in water, so they no longer had to send up the children or the, the ladies up to the hill with the buckets and carry it back down. I'm sure that process took forever. Um, we, we won the hearts and minds of them, and in turn— um, I mean, It's just all you're doing yeah. is—that's Maslow's hierarchy of needs right there, and yep. you fulfilled one of those basic needs. So Yeah, and so the, uh, the, the, what really stands out to me, though, is that in, in winning those hearts and minds, we were also adopted— that village and we were able to reach back to the United States and have care packages made uh, and sent to us. Remember we put all those together and we went out and, um, and delivered them. It was nothing more than uh, writing utensils, coloring books, different things like that that they can use in their schools. And they had little schools there that they would use that to, um, um, to teach in. And then we gave some stuff to the, uh, to, to the older folks as well. Um, clothing items and things that were donated, uh, shoes, of course they need shoes. Um, that was just heartwarming, right? It was. Uh, I don't want to focus on all the negative and the the, the, the gore and such that what, what what took place over there. 
Um, but that was more uplifting, more heartwarming. Um, and then have obviously, you know, Frank involved in that and helping, you know, deliver that, those goods to, um, to the children. And then having the pictures to send home to all the churches and everybody that had donated, um, it, you know, those become part of the wall and they, they hang it up and, you know, it was, it was, it was pretty heartwarming. Oh, and that's, to say the least. you know, when, when the United States has gone to war traditionally, there's, we, I think we've always tried to, let, let me rephrase it. When the United States has been in war traditionally, there's always been an appeal back to the civilian community to participate in that war. And of course, World War II, there was is the one war where we, I think we got it right um, for the vast majority. So when you send that back to, you know, the churches, you're showing them they're making a positive impact and that, that makes them feel a part of it. Now, my big question though would be, you know, you made reference to the, you know, the look like there had been some, you know, there were some younger fighters. Mm -hmm. Were you able to hold on to their hearts and minds or did fear come back into play? Well, I think that the, the fighters that we were identifying weren't necessarily there at the village. They were, off doing what they were doing. Um, our hopes were that they would be weeded out and mm -hmm. identified to us on our other engagements at that time uh, or told to not come around. You know, uh, this isn't a village that's welcoming to them. I mean, it was all the idea that that would be something that they would take care of, right? They would take care of the problem. Now, of course, identifying key individuals that we may have been looking for, key fighters, that was, that was important to us. Um, so it was networking. It was building that that intelligence picture for what may have been happening uh, in those locations. So the cynic though would look at that and say, yeah. you know, you're really kind of putting those people in a in a difficult spot though, because you're, you know, you're giving them basic sustenance. Mm -hmm. um, you're 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 appealing to them emotionally. You know, as you stated, winning their hearts and minds, um, which you absolutely need when it's all said and done. But now all of a sudden they're kind of in a little bit of a quandary because, you know, while, while we're not going to go after them physically and violently, the people that we were fighting absolutely would if they knew that, sure. uh, happens all the time. So, you know, that you, you adopted that village, but were you, that's what I'm saying. Were you able to hold on to them? I think the, uh, uh, the notion that you will never be able to protect everyone at all times. Um, you have the anticipation that they're going to be able to, uh, uh, you know, protect themselves in a certain way. I mean, these, but that doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to pick up arms and fight uh, for the cause. And, and, and I think that that's happened in both Iraq as well as Afghanistan, uh, that, that the folks that we've made friends with and we've, uh, I think you would, in your cynic view of that, would say that, you know, we've used them uh, to, to perform a certain, right. you know, function for us. Um, sure. It can be viewed that way. And, um, I don't like to think that that would be, um, the case. And of course the cynics would think that, however, um, I think for the time period that we were there, we protected them and, and did everything we could to, uh, to ensure their safety. That doesn't mean that when we left and that'll actually lead to a good story, uh, of something for Frank and I, um, is, is when you leave, Taliban or others come in and, and, um, and they backfill it. Well, they backfill it and, and find out who they were, who were the, uh, the supporters. And in, in fact, that was, uh, one of the 
situations that kept us in touch uh, over the years between uh, 2009 and where we've recently come back together was um, we had a uh, Afghanistan company, um, but not in the way in which we would think company, but more so. Construction. Yeah, construction guy, a guy that owned a bulldozer, right? Um, And we had HESCO walls that we were putting in. HESCOs are – you know, steel barriers, not steel barriers, but meshed barriers with like felt that goes up the side and you have to dump rocks and stuff inside and it acts as a wall and you stack them on top of each other. He had the bulldozer that would allow for that. Um, his name was Sadikula. Um, we have pictures with him and um, just a great guy, great supporter of what we had going on. And, and of course he was being paid to load dirt into our HESCO walls, but he was a good, good, good person uh, all around. Um, so let's, yeah. Let's actually stop right there and kind of tease everybody with the rest of that. And let's take a quick break. Um, And I want to hear about uh, the rest of this story because it sounds like like there's a lot more to it. So let's take a quick break. We pause to ask, who are you carrying this Memorial Day? Carry the Load provides an active way to connect you to the sacrifices of our military, veterans, first responders, and their families. Our Memorial May events help bring awareness and raise funds while we march to restore the true meaning of Memorial Day. Whether you walk with us on our 48-state national relay, attend the Dallas Memorial March Memorial Day weekend, or carry it anywhere in your community, join Carry the Load and thousands of participants nationwide as we work to honor and remember the sacrifices made for our freedom. For more on how you can join this grassroots movement, visit carrytheload.org slash Memorial May. I want to go back to, you are talking about uh, Sadiq a minute ago. So let's, let, let, let's talk about Sadiq and, um, and why you still remember Sadiq at this point. Uh, Sadiq, young, young guy, um, construction worker, um, had a uh, bulldozer that, as I had mentioned, um, was, was supporting our uh, operating base where we were uh, building some HESCO walls. Um, Sadiq was a young guy, uh, young, young 20-some, um, and he was just very, very helpful, very kind, spoke some English as well. So He was from that, Afghanistan. He I'm was saying. from Afghanistan, okay. right, yeah, mm-hmm. from Kabul, I think. Correct. Yeah. Um, and he was just, again, he was there every day and just helping us do what we needed to do to build the camp up and actually to the point of where... We were building some outposts onto the mountains, um, which, uh, you know, we actually had to have mules um, pack load the, uh, the material up, up to the top of the hill. And um, Sadiqullah would actually go up there with us. Sadiq would go up with us and, and help us, uh, uh, you know, build the walls and make sure everything was, was somewhat safe, you know, uh, or construction sound. Yeah, sound construction. Okay. Um, so, again, we just we hit it off and we, we really uh, – Liked him a lot and um, wanted to make sure that he was safe back to the, you know, the, the whole safety thing. And those that help you, you want to protect them and not allow mm-hmm. them to uh, go a different direction. So, And so, yep. whatever happened to him? So, interesting. So, I, I departed Afghanistan in 2010, um, early, early spring, you know, uh, time frame. And you weren't. Sure, you were shortly thereafter, right? You were April, May time frame. Mm-hmm. Frank was there a little bit longer. Um, so 
it was maybe a year or two later that uh, you had sent me, Frank sent me a uh, an email. And then it followed up with a phone call, which is was completely strange. I was in Germany at the time. I was working for uh, Africa Command. Okay. And um, and basically said Sadiq was in trouble. Um, and this is you know one of those those things that that you just don't even think about. You just do it and just help out whoever you can. And certainly for Sadiq, I had to uh, arrange for his extraction. There were some special force units that were there, uh, forces units that um, we made contact with. Uh, and had them arrange for a link-up with Sadiq. Okay. Now, the reason being is because Sadiq was, uh, and his entire family was under the threat, um, and the Taliban were looking for him for what he had he had done in support of the U.S. So we were able to, uh, Frank and I, through the communications, Frank back to Sadiq, uh, Sadiq to Frank to me, uh, arrange for that um, extraction uh, of Sadiq and his family to at least a safe location, uh, whether it was in, Afghan- in Afghanistan or I think Sadiq made it out of the country and his wife and young kid was safe. Yes, uh, at, the, at, the, were at the time. Okay, at the time. so at, at at the time, all right. So we're gonna. Uh, I want to drill down a little deeper here, mm-hmm. but what, what you're saying is that. Okay, so Sadiq reaches out to you, Frank. Right, Frank, you reach out to to you, Jeff, and then are you? at this point going to the command and saying, Hey, we've got a, um, you know, we've got a, a friendly, um, who is in danger. It was, it was the danger call. I think at that, I mean, absolutely. And I think, um, so it was, that, but I mean, was that pretty normal at that point? Cause it, or, or I don't, I don't think so. I probably, I don't want to say I abused anything in, in getting this, this action to occur. Um, I just felt pretty strongly that, that Sadiq, um, uh, had done some really good things for us, and it was unfair that he was then being targeted um, mm-hmm. because of that. So I had pulled some strings, and, and the uh, our boss at the time was a full bird, um, Army SF colonel. Okay. Uh, had a lot of pull, knew a lot of folks, and was able to um, uh, arrange for his extraction Okay, those those units. Probably not normal at all. No conventional units, I don't believe, would, would take on that particular mission. Um and it was just through connections through those. Those are those are the things you don't read about and hear about very often. I mean, right. you know, and that's 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 where, you know, I for one as a as a citizen get really really miffed at the media. I get really miffed at the politicians for for focusing on, um, on all the negatives. And you know what? I mean, you know, we've we've done some things that we shouldn't do. We've made some mistakes in the military. But then I hear about something like that, and it's like there's a human factor there that. But why is that not you know heard and, and celebrated more often? So I'm going to shut up and, and turn it back to you and let, yeah. keep going. What happened? So um, we were able to uh, to arrange for his extraction, and um, and then we lost. Uh, we lost touch. Yeah, lost touch. Right. So Sadiq, at that point, we couldn't tell you whether he survived or whether um, we we heard that he was safe, and that was the last we heard. And then I think it was three or four later years later that he had reached out to you, right. and he. Popped up in Italy, Italy, or do you? Did you arrange for him to go to Italy? No, he somehow managed to make himself all the way up to Europe. Mm-hmm. How I don't know. And so, uh, so you don't even know where he was to where he was extracted after his. You just got word he, back that it that it was a it was safe. It was successful safe. mission. Yeah, he it was, was safe. Okay, yeah. and then he just went off radar. Yep, because uh, we had him on some of the social websites. 
he just totally went off radar. Four, I believe, four or five years later, mm-hmm. he sent me an e. He would. I wouldn't get any response from any email or anything from him. So he sent me an email. I was surprised to get an email from him. He said he's he'd made it to Italy, and his family is in hiding still. And he would like to know whether, if there's anything, this program to any U.S. program that he could probably somehow come to U.S. And I said I would uh, follow up, which we did. And then there's a there's there was this SIV program that was uh, kind of somewhat tedious, but uh, he was in the process of that. Yeah, this this is the same this SIV program, same program when. When uh, when we withdrew completely from Afghanistan, that everybody was talking about, very similar. Yeah, yeah. So, so Frank reached out to me um, again um, and had said, "Hey, Sadiq is safe. I heard from him. He's back on the radar, and he is looking to. Uh, he needs validation of what he did. Uh, essentially, that he did work for the U.S. Um, government in Afghanistan to basically uh, strengthen his package, his special immigrant visa package for it." At the time, I was a um, uh, I was the defense attaché working on uh, the embassy in the Dominican Republic, so I had the backing of the State Department at that point, you know, and I was the the, the dat. I was the defense attaché. Um, so that's a good backing to have. Good backing to have, especially in that case. Um, I was able to generate on you know some some good letterhead with my signature uh, a letter uh, that I think served him well, right? I think um, he was able so. to. Um, push forward with uh, that process. Now, I th- believe that that was um, immediately successful. I'm not certain what tripped him up on it. Um, but at, recently, within the year, uh, he's come back online, especially since the, the pullout of Afghanistan. Um, I think he's trying to bring his family out. He's still in Italy. He's trying to bring his wife and kids out. Um, and so wants, is, are his wife and kids again. still in Afghanistan? I, I believe. I believe so. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, that can't be safe. Because they'll use right. Right. use them to get to him. Um, so when was the last time you talked to him? Probably a little about a year ago. Mm-hmm. I would say ten ten months. Maybe a little bit more. No, yeah. a little bit less. A little bit less. Eight ten months. Yeah. So do you think somebody like Sadiq feels somewhat betrayed by how we've pulled out of the country? Um, I don't want to say made it difficult, but it it hasn't. It's certainly not easy for him to uh, correct survive. Yeah, yeah, to maintain life. Uh, that's a good question. I'm as a human being, I think there probably is some animosity there. Whether you know, it's one of those you do your damn, you don't do your damn. I mean, he just he didn't do anything. He just had a bulldozer and made up retaining wall. Now his life is in jeopardy just because of that. Hmm. Uh, so, what, so what's the answer on something like that? What's the? It's a very good question. I don't think, and there is a, there's a, true, definite answer for that. It's just, it is what it is. It's sad. You know, there were, uh, there's a lot of good people there. Yeah, there's no one answer. Yeah, I think that there's there's, many many good people. Um, that are there that you just can't bring them all home. You can't bring them all to a new place. You try to make their place better, and you make the realization that 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 country will always be like that country is. 
and no one has ever successfully led from Kabul. You know, it, it's it's just very difficult, as Frank was pointing out. You know, the north, the south, the east, and west, they are all culturally yes, culturally different. And there's no way that you can— clash. Yeah, you just cannot bring it all yeah, together. Constantly. Who said that—it um, was a great little vignette for Afghanistan, is if brothers are fighting brothers. If brothers aren't fighting brothers, they're fighting their cousins. And if they're not fighting their cousins, they're fighting the village next to them. Okay, and then if the villages aren't fighting, then they're fighting the provinces. And then if they're invaded, then they all join together and they fight the invaders. Until the invaders Until leave. the invaders leave. And then they go back to fighting the provinces, to the villages, to the bro- cousins and brothers, yeah, so on and so forth. Yeah. Down so, to back to his brother, brother. So, so is, it a, um, is it a safe conclusion to say it's just a warring culture? That that's, I mean, it, I mean. It, I would, I would hate to say that, but that's exactly what it is. And I believe the only way it's going to cure itself is within time. Uh, give it a century, a give, give it a century or two. Let some new blood come in. The two, three, four generations go by, maybe. Yes. Other than that, it's a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. It is vastly, vastly full of resources. That's interesting. I don't know that I've ever heard Afghanistan, Afghanistan described as a beautiful. Country. It's a beautiful country. They really? have really beautiful spots. Lush there's rivers, there's mountains, there's valleys. Well, there, then, then why? There's are, so many resources. Yeah. Then why Jeff are and I, put in a village we in a place just, where there's no water. Right. I mean, well, they have to live somewhere. There's no, now it's not a metroplex. I mean, there's no, there's no infrastructure as mm-hmm. what you and I would think. So Kabul and, right. and you know, other places like that mm-hmm. are going to have some buildings. Uh, back in the seventies, they were very modern. Oh Yeah. Um, real modern, yeah, but but still, the outskirts, of the villages are just—it's it's dirt poor. Mm-hmm. And I, I cut yep. you off, Frank. I'm sorry. Please no. continue. Um, it is a beautiful country, um, even with all the infighting amongst themselves. There's true. There's this um, this warmth and hospitality, and mostly in the Pashtun. If I yeah, think you would warm. agree, they have this brotherly thing, feeling. If they connect with you, doesn't matter if you're from there or not, or you're a foreigner. If you become close to them like a brother, they call you family, then you become their family for life. And they are willing to sacrifice for them for set themselves for that. So that's that bond is very, very strong and it's very, very thick. That's one of the beauty beauties of that region. Other than that, it is vastly full of Natural resources. It's just mind-boggling. We had this um, outpost in our backyard, I would rather say, which was on the top of a mountain. And uh, it was an outpost that was stationed for two weeks at a time. So it would rotate. Two people would stay there for two weeks, and then they would come back and they would rotate. Uh, In order to supply those guys, we had contracted some mule handlers, I would say. Uh, There were quite a few of them. These were vetted. And this one particular gentleman had two mules, a younger one and an older one. Hmm. And uh, very interesting. Um, One day, uh, I believe it was 4th of July, we uh, we had to walk up to the post. Everybody from our group team had to walk up to the post, which took quite a few hours. 
And then this gentleman had to carry a load for the next two weeks. And I happened to be with our colonel. And Jeff had left with a couple of other guys walking up the trail to go up to the mountain. And, and how far was this distance? This distance was, I would say, for a mule walk, probably five, six hours. Oh, my. Yeah, it's, it's a good, you're going. It's a switchback. So yeah, it's the top it's a, of a okay. mountain, and the switchback goes back and forth, back and forth, up yeah. to the top. Up to okay. the top. Takes, takes upwards of about All the way to the to top of that mountain. And, yep. and you were already ahead of him at this point. We were already heading up. Yeah. Okay. So I decided to stay back with, with the colonel because there was nobody left back there. So the colonel and I, we just sat at the bottom, at the at the base, right when they were started leaving. We made a little camp. We sat there uh, with the mule guy, and he's loading up his mule. And uh, and I'm sorry to have missed this one. As well. yeah. this, <laughs> we is, were play- this is one I've heard many times, and I'm going to we tell you I'm sorry Scrabble. I missed it. <laughs> Colonel and I got into a big heavy-duty Scrabble game, and... We were throwing these weird words that weren't even in the dictionary. You know, that's a word, and I thought, no, this is a word. So, and then the mule carrier comes over. He said, I want to talk to you. I said, okay. So he starts talking, and he said, I want you to translate for me to your boss. I said, that's a colonel. He said, okay, colonel. That my, you know, I get paid such and such. It's a very small amount. And, you know, I have to buy food for the mule and I have to buy feed for my children, and I have to do this, and I have two meals. You know, you give me so much, and I have to do this, this, and you, I get this ration. I have to take it up. This particular meal, number one, is a young one. He's okay, but this particular meal is very old, and I can't afford another one because meals are very expensive. So I have to entice it to go up to the mountain. I said, okay, how do you entice it? He said, well, you know about Afghan people. I said, yeah, I have heard about Afghan people. He said, okay, what we do, we, we, what, one thing we like is smoking hash. <laughs> I don't know if I have a lot to say there. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so he pulls out this thing like the size of an egg, big old black thing. He said, this is what we, see this? This is very good stuff. You want He's holding it like this, showing it to the colonel. Colonel's shaking his head. He doesn't. He thinks he knows what it is, but he's he's waiting for somebody. He asked me, what is that? He, I told him, sir, it's uh, narcotics. He said, no, what do you mean narcotics? I said, it's hash to be exact. He said, why is this guy showing us this? He said, well, there's a little story behind it. So I told him the story. He said, I'll make it short. This old mule won't go up the mountain until I get him high. <laughs> because he's, I put a lot of weight on him, and he doesn't go. I can beat him to death. He won't move. I get him high. Hash is expensive. Either buy me a new young mule or give me extra money so I can buy more hash. And this is how I do it. <laughs> and I'm translating the wait, colonel. Hold, hold on, hold on. Is and, the colonel thinking and the colonel, this guy's trying to to the colonel is just shaking his head and he's just he's just almost ready to <laughs> start laughing. He's asking me, is this guy fooling us? I said, no, sir, he's telling you the truth. He said, no, I swear on my father's grave, on my grandfather's grave. All I said, okay, then what? how do you get him? How do you get a mule high? He (laughs) he pulls out a big garbage bag, and he puts it over his head, and he puts it over the mule's head, and he takes a little thing that he's burning. He said, watch this. I'm not even going to waste it. So he's he's inside this garbage bag for a good minute, 45, two minutes. And then he takes the bag out, big old 
big cloud, old cloud of smoke comes out, <laughs> and they're both happy. <laughs> he said, "See, now he will go, and he will have no problem going." But this costs money, so if either increase my salary for one hundred fifty, two hundred dollars, or buy me another meal. That's the that's the fuel. That's the that's fuel. The and then fuel. he he says, "Well, this is very good. I just got this, and it's a very good batch." Would you like to try some? He's asking the colonel, <laughs> the colonel. if you would like to partake. <laughs> the colonel said, no, I'm okay. Oh, so this was a very interesting story. And so he made it up there. It may have he taken him a up. couple hours longer. but yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> High octane. He made it up. Oh, he my probably gosh. Had, That's it, hysterical. So the, I mean, it just, it's a, it's a country of you just, you do what you got yeah, to do to get do. it done. Yeah. Survival. Yeah. I'll be darned. So, so seriously, how long did it take the mule to get up there? Uh, probably four or five hours. He ran, That's it? He ran the first 30 minutes. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> wow. Yeah, very so, interesting. All right. So you guys left out of there not too long or not apart too far apart. Mm-hmm. And you stayed in touch this, uh, this entire time? Or did you just come back together? I mean, how, how did you hatch this whole idea? About going into business together. Right, right. We were on the... Hills of Afghanistan. Yeah, That's we cool. were on a post. At the post, we had built right in our backyard, the one the mules. And we actually did a couple of helicopter drops for that place, too. It used to be an old outpost. We built the walls, uh, did some perimeter sandbagging, and made it a little bit more stable. Uh, we were sitting there. And Jeff asked me, he said, tell me about what you used to do. So I kind of briefly told him what I used to do. And I told him it's, uh, it's you know, it's. So I'm going to take the story from there, Frank. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we're there on the post. And, and you know, we, I, I tell a story with color and I say, hey, we were, we were drunk on tea because we were drinking, you know, green tea and just uh, enjoying the stars and doing whatever. But, you know, it's small talk when you're, when you're alone up there and, and you're, uh, you know, very few folks. Um, you find yourself in like a solitude state, and mm-hmm. in that case, you know you, you you share some some stories. In this case, I wanted to hear about Frank. Frank, tell me about what uh what you've done. He says I convert paper. You convert paper. What does that mean? He's and now I find out you know he's 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 well off, right? And and I'm even liking him because he's even more. He's he's supporting his country because he just sold his last business and he came over to do interpretation. Didn't need to. Didn't need to. Didn't need a penny to go do it. So he tells me about this paper converting that he takes these big raw parent rolls of paper and converts them into toilet paper and hand towels and different things that we would find, Todd, you and I would find in the uh, uh, commercial bathroom, mm-hmm. you know, any, anywhere from the, the big toilet rolls that you see in the uh, uh, the stalls right. or the ones you pull out of the uh, thing next to the sink. So he was telling me about this and I'm, you know, I'm a Marine major at the time. I'm like, that's great. Okay. Toilet paper. Sounds great. He's like, no, it's a commodity. And right, this is the first time he's, he's really kind of hit home. He's like, no, you got to understand, this stuff is used by everybody. And it's a, it's, it's a business that really is recession-proof because everybody needs toilet paper. Everybody needs paper Not COVID-proof, though. Not COVID-proof, no. But, you know, those hand dryers that, that blow hot air are gone now because they create problems. Anyway, so uh, when he told me about this story in this business, I said, well, that's really damn, really interesting. So, um Tell me more about it. So he just told me about how the machines work, what they do, how that whole process is, and, and where the market is from Asia to where it is in the U.S. and his businesses he had in California and, and how that's all gone. I said, that's really interesting. I said, it's great. Um, I still had you know years left to retire. 
come out of Afghanistan and, and fast forward, you know, the years that we've stayed in touch through the Sadiq issue mm-hmm. and, and others. Um, I retired in August of 17 and, um, any retiree normally takes their first job contracting for the government in some way. Um, and, and that's exactly what I did. So, uh, Frank, uh, stayed in touch via Facebook and other means, um, and had mentioned to me that, uh, um, Hey, remember we talked about paper? I said, I do. He said, um, I think I'm going to go to Texas. I'm going to go to Texas. I said, you're going to, what are you going to do in Texas? He said, no, I want to open up a new, want to open up a business. He said, and we always had these ideas. Remember sitting there, we were like, we were going to open up a security consulting business. That was going to be the, 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 the niche between the military and all the languages that he speak. We were going to provide, you know, almost like a, I don't want to say Blackwater, but that type of, right. you know, service to hog to the government. Yeah, it was Hog because we had another uh, member at the time. It was Opsitis Goolshed, but Hog was uh, uh, Hubs. Hubs Opsitis Goolshed. Um, hog was going to be the name of the company. Uh, and he basically got back to me and said, hey, um, we don't have Hog anymore. He said, so how about Hog? I said, that doesn't work. How about Go? Right? And uh, Goolshed Opsitis. Okay. And a lot of it was just laughing we're like oh well we'll do a business and and the first chapter will sound like on the hills of afghanistan you know the dusty hills of afghanistan here we are with uh the idea and wouldn't you know it that that idea is now in place here in dallas um goldshad opsitis is known as go paper industries and we just formed uh, a company we opened it um in september we have two converting lines that this engineer sitting next to me uh designs and makes himself i made them from overseas and we got them now sitting in our facility, um, and we're producing paper for the Dallas area. So the idea that was born in the hills of Afghanistan came to fruition. Uh, with all the little stories that we've had along the way of, you know, anywhere from Sadiq to the mule to the, uh, to the villages. You know, so yeah. normally this, this, is the, this is the part where I'm like, you know, hey, what, you know, what were your takeaways? What, what lessons did you learn, you know, from your time? And really the answer is toilet paper, um, yeah. you know, which is just – a really odd answer to all of this, but <laughs> isn't it <laughs> in, in, in all seriousness? <clears throat> I mean, I, I love the story. I think it's so cool. And, and Frank, I mean, I just have nothing but respect for you. You know, as, as Jeff pointed out to me before and, and reiterated here, you didn't have to do what you did financially. I know you're, you're, you're more than comfortable uh, through selling your businesses, but yet, Anyone who questions your patriotism, Jeff's got a whole lot of brothers that'll be right there Amen. with them to back you up. Because, again, that that's just, you didn't have to do it, and you did it. And it's every bit. And I would do it again. <clears throat> and that's what I love. That is what I love. <clears throat> so from your time in country together, I would love to hear your biggest takeaways. Again, you know, what lessons do you carry with you? I mean, you know, you, you've got kids. What are you teaching your kids based on your experiences there? Cultural acceptance. We've been around. Um, the military takes you everywhere. And in this case, I've been to uh, all the places, sometimes by myself, obviously in, in Afghanistan and, and Iraq. Um, but there's places that we've been with the family. So one thing that I teach my kids and the lessons I take away is that you're exposed to cultures around the world, um, and we as uh, Americans sometimes aren't exposed, and many times aren't exposed to them, so we don't have an appreciation for 
the cultural differences mm-hmm. um, that we all have and, and that are that make us uh, the world that we are. And we have to learn to be accepting of that because not everybody is the same. We're not all the same cookie cutter by any means. Um, and if I was to express it to my kids and the lessons that were learned is that um, you really need to um, look twice, think twice, um, and, and understand. And I think the kids, my kids already do. They, they, they get that. They speak, you know, different languages as well just from being, uh, they learn German, they learn Spanish. Um, and in that in of itself, I think languages are the key to uh, culture as well. Because when you learn language and you can interact with others, that's, uh, that's really important. Um, so, what, you know, what's really interesting about that is, um, you know, the, the, the business that I'm in um, uh, is the mortgage business. Mm-hmm. And it is the Indian culture is very well known for being very, very hard bargaining people. Um, and that's I a use very violent <clears throat> word. You say. That's what I would use a harsher word. To- <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I want to be very respectful, right. um, but no, their, their negotiation skills are, are just, I mean, they have expectations. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I would have, uh, you know, folks on my sales team, you know, they'd come to me and they're like, Oh man, you know, these guys, they're beating me up and they're, and you know, exactly what you're just talking about, Jeff, understanding the culture. Now I didn't necessarily understand it right away, but I, I knew enough through my exposure to a lot of other cultures to, to go study this a little bit, because you got to be curious. You got to, you got to seek to understand. Right. And so what I really determined in very short order is that, you know, you had to do two things. Number one, you had to set the ground rules right up front. Because if they're not going to play on the same field that you're going to play on from the standpoint of negotiating. Um, and, you know, number two is you, you have to give in just a little bit. You know, if you draw a hard line in the sand and say, I'm not going to move anywhere, I'm not, I'm not moving, you know, at, at all, I'm not giving in at all, well, that tells them that, that you're not willing to work with. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, and I would explain this to people, and, and it was always funny, it would come back to me, you know, that, that's racist. I'm like that's not racist called cultural understanding yes yep and it's and it's actually the further the furthest thing because you're you're seeking to understand their culture and you're actually adapting to to how they they uh you know they operate they work so i mean I, you know just you know, it's your story but i just it, it no, triggered it's, something it's, it's for me 100%. that i had to jump in on yep. I, I love your answer so what what, what about you frank <clears throat> I think you you need to look at good in everything and everyone. There's good in everyone. That's, everyone. And there's good in every entity, every soul. So there you need to seek the good in the other the opposite party. Just uh do your best and seek good in them. So that, do you really if I were to really challenge you on that, do you really believe that all the people that you came across in Afghanistan there was good in each and every one of them? I think there is good in each and every, all of us. Whether it's suppressed, whether it's majority or minority, there is good. And if we look for that, it's much more beneficial than just on the surface working with somebody. If you can find that that that, that inner soul that mm-hmm. clicks, you can bond with, and then you can work with them, yes. 
Same thing like you were mentioning with your Indian clients. Okay, um, I would say it's more, it's not as much as culture, it's just habit. Uh, in their mentality, in their culture, um, if I offer you something for a very low amount, its value is less. doesn't matter if it's whatever, however expensive that item is, or it could be anything. But if somehow you can negotiate, or you're, you're, let's say we are, we're negotiating, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're making a deal. Uh, we have to set on a set, come to a set figure. You offer such, and I have to, have to, have to bring you down, regardless of how good that offer is. If I don't make you reduce your price, I haven't, I, I haven't won. Right. Yeah, it doesn't matter how good the deal is. It's this property is worth ten million. I'm giving it to you for a million cash. Why can't I have it for half of that? That's the mentality. So yeah, and that, that's what I was our, talking about. You almost yes, have to, to in there, come so off a little bit. In in both Not in that this Asian, is a business show, but no, we're yeah, talking we're about it. In Southwest Asian, <laughs> mostly Southwest Asian and West Asian, this that's culture. If they don't doesn't matter. It's hypothetical. Right. The, the the value is hypothetical. Okay. They have to reduce whatever you're asking. Yes. Just for their own mental right. state. That hey, I had him to come down. Yeah, and that, and that goes right just, back to the importance of understanding just the culture. culture exactly. It, it doesn't make it wrong. Yeah. Nope. It just is. Mm -hmm. And they want to have the best deal on the planet. Absolutely. Yeah. And then another five percent off. <laughs> when you're when you're done closing after you've closed, he's going to ask for another two to five percent on the side. <laughs> but that, but again, that's the culture. Yeah, and and, and it it doesn't make it wrong. It's yeah. just that's the way it is. It, they're hard to work with. Yeah, don't worry. I got I got I was working with a, an Indian gentleman that that wanted to buy some of our product, mm -hmm. and uh, Frank started off and went down the at least two three days of of back and forth with this guy. Frank knows how to. Culturally, sure. work through these issues. Insert me. I'm not very good at it. Um, no, you're, you're right to the point. No, I'm Here's right. I'm like, hey, done with it. here it is. Done. Here's my line. I'm not moving. <clears throat> Whatever. Well, Frank had already taken him to that point, and now he thinks he's going to work me over and get me down that extra little uh, spot. And um, I, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to make that you know change. I'm, I'm asking Frank. I'm like, why is this guy doing this? You, I thought you already agreed on what they were going to do. And Frank's like, see. You know, it's it's the next it's the next stage of it, right? It's that next, mm -hmm. and and you just if you don't understand, you have to be prepared to walk yeah, away. You yes. have to be exactly right. Yes, and you know what? We did walk away, and I haven't heard back um, in weeks. That doesn't mean that next week there won't be a phone call. Exactly, because it's a commodity and they need it. Um, mm -hmm. There's a paper shortage. Well, man, that interesting turn. I didn't really expect to go there in this one, but uh, yeah. So okay. By the way, you brought that up. I did bring that up. Yeah. That's true. So carry the load. Um, you know, Jeff, you're not as familiar with carry the load, but you will be when I'm done with you. Excellent. Um, Frank, I want you, uh, uh, I want to tell you all about it as well, okay. you know, even outside of this. But one of the things about carry the load, um, you know, the, it, it was founded uh, by two friends of mine now, uh, two uh, Navy SEALs who, and it was really born out of anger. It was born out of anger because they they continued to lose friends uh, overseas, and 
you know, America in our naive nature uh, as a society did not understand really what was happening um, over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And so when Memorial Day would come around, people just didn't know. You know, really, it's, it, it goes back to some of that, that um, um, not naive, but ignorance. I mean, you know, pure ignorance. Um, people didn't understand what Memorial Day really, truly was. So, so Clinton, Stephen, um, really out of anger, began this movement that we now call Carry the Load. Well, Carry the Load is making sure that, um, that the death of those that we served with, our loved ones, that their death was never in vain. And so it's very important in our, in our world that we are uh, constantly reminding ourselves of those who made the ultimate sacrifice so that we could enjoy um, you know, the freedoms that we hold dear. So I'm saying all of this because I, I want to ask each of you who you're carrying with you this day. So our tagline is, who are you carrying? And I'm curious to know about an individual that maybe collectively, individually, um, you know, you and I lost a couple of guys that we served with. I want to know who you still carry with you to this day, and, and let's make sure that we're speaking their, their names while we're here. Yeah, Ray Mendoza. So, Ray Mendoza. Big Ray, yep. Big Ray. Tell everybody about, about yeah, Big Ray. A, he was a monster. He was uh, a high State wrestler, um, you know, backup Olympic heavyweight. Uh, decided first, to, first alternate on the yep. 95 U.S. Olympic went, team. We went to IOC with him, and he was he was fearless, uh, as he should be. Um, he was just etched out of stone, brick, you know, brick building, if you will. Um, no, Ray, Ray, Ray was – inspiration for anybody just because he was his his accolades right what he'd already accomplished prior to even coming into the marine corps um and going through ioc tbs you know ioc Todd, you know with him um you know even the instructors had you know admiration for for him and um you know he was just a he was fantastic his marines from i didn't serve with him right so i didn't serve with him when we left school i think he went over to uh, the west coast um yeah and, um, but his name preceded him everywhere, you know, he went anywhere from, you know, his, his, his time as a lieutenant to, you know, his company command and, and such. And, um, so Ray, uh, Ray was killed in Ramadi, I believe in 2006. I, I don't want to get the date wrong, but I just want to say that, that, um, he was killed in Iraq. Let's just say mm-hmm. that. And, and, and it was, it, it's so terrible to, to hear those things. Um, and, and it really breaks you up because of the, um, you, you know somebody, right? And and they, they mean so much to to others, their family, and and to the Marines that they serve. Um, but then to those that have served with them or had gone through with them, um, I think we should never forget uh, those individuals because uh, they made the ultimate ultimate sacrifice. And and Ray certainly did. And I know that all of his West Coast brethren, you know, they climb the mountain to be with him. Um, and it's moving. It's it's very moving. So yeah, and I've I've got a couple. Yeah. Ray Mendoza stories that, uh, you know, that I would love to tell at another time, oh, yeah. but you know, he, uh, yeah, he and I were in, you know, we were both at two, one together and, um, um, that as big and as nasty as he could be, if he needed to, 
I'll just say he was just as gentle of Uncle an individual. John. So, Frank, what about you? Did you did you serve with anybody that uh, that you lost overseas? Um, actually, there were yes, there were three people. They were very good. Um, one was also uh, a Marine, a uh, younger gentleman. He was in. Uh, he came over. He I met him in Bagram. He was in logistics. Just re- recently married, had a young boy, and um, what's his name? Last name Ferris. Um, okay. I kind of he helped me out quite a bit in the beginning when we uh he was with me in Georgia for 3 weeks and then from Georgia when we went to Aladit he helped me throughout the whole thing this whole ordeal logistics of movement and everything really really nice guy i just right now my mind is kind of blocked this uh, but he helped me quite a bit he stayed in Afghanistan for nine months, he'd been deployed twice. And young guy, very young guy, very, very super nice young guy. And they went out on a patrol, and then his vehicle got blown up. Another person who used to be my ex-employee's brother was in the same vehicle. You're kidding. Yeah, he got his right right side blown up. He lost a leg. And some fingers on the right hand side, and his brother used to be an employee. Was my employee. So these both of these people that I knew were in one vehicle that got um, blown up. It's sad. It's it's sad. He was such a such a nice man. I mean, just he would go out of his way, help you out, and and just the, just the charming personality. It's sad. It's it just it saddens you, you know. It's sad, but it's but we're fortunate that there are people like like Ray and Ferris that um, that are willing, yes, to do these things for others. And then uh, I second first time I came in R and R, there were a whole lot of human remains in that flight. There were a lot of caskets. My heart just. I said, every one of these is a son, a husband, a father, a brother, sister. There were a lot of caskets. I mean, I was shocked how many caskets were coming in that one flight. It was so sad. Just, it was, it was, it was, it was, you know, you, you look at your life, you're like, here I am, I'm breathing, I'm next to a casket. I'm laying next to a casket, and there's a dead person in there that gave us life. It's 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 hard to explain, and somebody you knew, you know. I knew that gentleman. So he was such a good guy. And sometimes we say, you know, I know a lot of people. Why didn't this guy die instead of this guy? You know, I wish it was this guy. I, mean, I hate to say that, but it's just this. Yeah, just, why? Why him? Yeah, just, why him? A just a, the good guy. Just. And then there were two other brothers. Two brothers. They were um, in a very hot zone. One, one, one of them was a Rambo. The other one was very docile. 
down to earth. They had both enlisted. Both of them died within a week in a valley in Afghanistan. God, that poor family. Yeah. One of them, the second one got up at night to go relieve himself. God knows how. Got shot in the head in the dark from wherever a projectile came. The other one, gunfight. But you would think somebody get up up in the valley at night, you're going to relieve yourself in the pitch dark that nobody can see anything. And that was his destiny. You know, he got shot in the head. And that's why it Just, is ultra important that we continue to remember yeah. these people because, you know, they, they made a difference. Yeah. Remember, remember them. Cherish their memories. Yeah. Jeff. Frank, thank you all very much for being here. Well, thank you this for is, having uh, us. Thank you for having us. You know, it just, I, I almost wish we had, you know, just no constraints on time because I, I just, <laughs> my mind was going in so many different yeah. directions, so many things I want to talk to you about. But, hey, thank you all for being here. And, uh, Jeff, glad to have you in Texas, my friend. Fantastic to be here. I absolutely love it every minute. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.